My name is Jeff. It's uh, good to see you here this morning. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a real joy to be able to open up God's Word uh, with you this morning. GCF exists to, to glorify God. We do that through gospel-centered worship, evangelism, discipleship, and community. And so uh, every week as I look through the text and ask the Lord, uh, predominantly for help, uh, he answers that prayer. This week was no different, and it is a huge privilege to be able to open up God's Word with you all. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 13 as we continue here in our series in the Gospel. As you're turning there, we do have, I don't have one with me here, but we do have those Mark journals. There we go. Thank you, Jack and Tess, and well, several of you. Uh, if you haven't used those, if you'd like to use those, we have those in our bookstore. It's a great way to just follow along. has the text there. You can make all kinds of notes. So I'd encourage you to pick one of those up here as we have uh, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 sermons, 10, 12 uh, sermons. I'm probably wrong on that, left in the Gospel of Mark here, uh, but at least it'll give you an, uh, some indication of where we're going here. If you're able to, please stand as I read Mark chapter 13. It's a, it's a pretty large chunk here, so if you need to sit down at some point, that is absolutely okay. Mark chapter 13, uh, reading verses 1 through verse 23. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. Those, these are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first, first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake." But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, Pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation, that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, 
Or look, there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. Our great God and heavenly Father, as we come to your word now, I pray not simply because this is how sermons are supposed to start, but I pray because we really need you to answer this prayer. Father, give us ears to hear. Give us ears to hear that these words in the next few moments may not be lost on us. Father, we do not want to waste time. There's just no point in hearing another sermon if your spirit is not moving in our hearts, softening our hearts, illuminating your word. So be gracious to do that, I pray. Give us what we need to hear from your all-sufficient and holy word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've heard me say for the last couple weeks now that we will be jumping back into our series in the Gospel of Mark. And now, after having read the first 23 verses, now you know I really mean that. Chapter 13 of Mark is not a chapter that you sort of slowly just ease your way into. You kind of uh, dip your toes into the shallow end. You kind of test the waters, and then you think, I'm not really sure if I want to get wet. No, chapter 13 of Mark is more like taking a big jump off the diving board, and so as you are looking face down, you think, I I am going to get wet. And we're all going to get wet this morning. By all accounts, Mark chapter 13 is really the most difficult chapter in the entire Gospel of Mark. Some commentaries I read this week, which I didn't find helpful, uh, they said this is the most difficult chapter in the entire New Testament. Many scholars, theologians have written that this text and its companion text in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 are among the most mentally taxing and potentially confusing for Christians to have any sort of agreement on then and now. I think many of us probably, we read this chapter and we think, okay, I think I got that. Jesus is giving us some signs about the end of the world and about what we should look for before the world actually ends. And so we actually read a whole list of some pretty bad things, wars, famines, earthquakes, something called the abomination of desolation. Sounds like the Antichrist, false prophets, fake messiahs. And then in verse 19, there's this great tribulation. And then Jesus comes in the cloud to save all those from all the ends of the earth who are his elect. And so we conclude, this must be the end of the world as we know it. But do any of us feel fine? Probably more confused than fine. So what are we supposed to do with a passage like this? Nothing seems to get sincere Christians uh, more easily fired up or riled up than talking about prophecy and the end times and the end of the world. Many of us are old enough to remember in the mid-1990s, the hugely popular book series Left Behind. You know, in the span of just over 10 years, those books sold 65 million copies. 
They were on the New York Times bestseller list for several years. It was a hugely popular take on prophecy and the end times. And it's not just Christians that are really fascinated with the future. No one has swung and missed more than Jehovah's Witness, whose false predictions about the end of the world currently stand at nine. So they first predicted the world was going to end in 1874. Now look, that would be a hard business to be in. Like you get it wrong the first time, there's, there's, there's maybe a little grace to that. And then you get it wrong the second time and you're thinking, I don't know about these guys, but nine times. I don't even have words for that, frankly. But every couple of years we read, do we not, about another doomsday prophet somewhere in the world who gets a microphone and definitively tells us the date and time when the world is going to come to an end. And with 100% accuracy, they have all been definitively wrong. Some of you this morning may be disappointed in what I'm about to say in the next three hours. (laughs) You've studied prophecy. You've read the book of Revelations dozens of times. You love to debate the signs. You may have your own little great tribulation chart in your Bible just in case, uh, just, just in case a conversation breaks out in Fellowship Hall. I'm not here to convince you to change your position. It is good to study God's word. It is good and right to think deeply about what we read here in the Bible, but it is okay here if you leave here this morning thinking, you know what, I don't don't think I really agree with Brinkman on his, his approach to this text and maybe even some of his conclusions. That is absolutely okay. I just want you to know, I'm not gonna lose sleep over that, nor should you. Some of you may be here thinking, you know what, I I don't really think too much about the end of the world. What I really think about is the end of this day, and then I go to bed and I wake up and I do it all over again. I know Jesus has a plan and it's going to be good, but that's kind of it. And I get that. And looking at some of you, you're thinking, man, if this is the direction Brinkman's heading in, I need more coffee, more caffeine. The pressing question, brothers and sisters, from Mark 13 really, is is how do we make sense of this Olivet Discourse, these incredible words that Jesus speaks here? Is this actually a text about the end times, about the end of the world as we know it? My short answer to that is not exactly. In a way, yes, but not Primarily. Now, I have learned over the years that there are certain sermons that as you prepare them, the Lord actually shows up and he just surprises you. I think that's his kind grace. And that was my week. I was actually surprised in studying this text this week. And I found myself saying, Lord, as I I got into this even deeper, Lord, let me just trust you again, as if for the first time. Because I began to see the Lord here in his glory and in his faithfulness and his trustworthiness in in a new way. And so in studying this and in really being submerged in Mark 13, it actually made me want to become a Christian all over again. I was sharing this with a text with a pastor friend of mine. And he was like, uh, Jeff, you, you're a pastor, so you're supposed to be a Christian? 
And I was like, I know. But, but I wanted to become a Christian all over again. Not because I finally figured out the algorithm for the signs, but because of the glory and the brilliance and the majesty and the divinity of the one who is actually speaking these words. The Lord himself. And it made me want to trust Christ all over again. As if for the first time. So maybe a word of caution for some of us here. Don't be so fascinated with these signs that you miss the Savior. Don't be so blown away by all of these fascinating details here that you can bypass Jesus, the true king, the one who ensures that every last word that he says here will come to fruition just as he said it would. And so in this passage, church, Jesus gives his disciples a a prophetic prediction of what was about to take place. And here's what's interesting. The real issue for those disciples then, as they're hearing Jesus, and the real issue at stake for all of us today is exactly the same thing. Can Jesus be trusted? Does Jesus actually know the future? Does Jesus have a plan and a purpose for it all? Does Jesus have a role for you and for me and for his church in this world? And the answer as we read Mark chapter 13 over and over and over again is yes. Yes. So perhaps in, as we make our way through this text this morning, you too might learn to trust in Jesus all over again. Maybe for the first time. Here's the immediate context for these important words of Jesus. And I want you to keep in mind here that we are really in the last week of the earthly life of Jesus. This scene likely took place probably on the Wednesday, which means that in two days, 48 hours, Jesus is about to be beaten and suffer, be crucified, and hang on a cross. Not for his own sins, for our sins, for the sins of humanity. And Mark records then in verse 1 that Jesus is leaving the temple, and he is leaving the temple never to return again. And as he leaves the temple, one of his disciples, it's Peter, (laughs) asks a question, actually just makes a comment. He leaves and he says he can't help but notice how impressive this temple really is. Now, all these disciples had good reason to say that and to think that because this temple was an incredible building. It was a magnificent building. It was actually one of the great wonders of the ancient world. It had been under construction for 45, almost 50 years at this this point from King Herod, Herod the Great. You may recall him. Herod the Great was a great builder and a great sinner, and that is a whole other sermon. But he knew what he was doing in terms of building. This platform on which the temple sat was big enough to hold 12 football fields. The retaining wall around this temple was 15 stories high. Some of the single stones that they used, and this is incredible when you think about this, like they don't have cranes. This is way back when, in in the old age. These stones were 60 feet in length, and some of them weighed over a million pounds. And all of it was decorated in gold so that when the sun would beat down upon it, almost, you literally almost couldn't look at it. It was so brilliant. It was so radiant. It was so glorious. 
And as you know, the temple had great significance for the Jewish people. It represented the very presence of God among them. And so the disciples really can't help themselves. They're staring at this incredible building, this massive, awesome building, and they just make a comment about it. And I want you to notice the response of Jesus. It's actually quite startling. I mean, Jesus says, in effect, don't be so enamored with this incredible building because you guys need to know it's all coming down, every last stone. The disciples are rightly flabbergasted. I mean, it brings up a whole new series of questions. Why, Jesus, is the temple going to be destroyed? By whom? When is that going to happen? What's that all going to mean? Certainly what it means is that what is so impressive for you and me is often, often needing to be redrawn, recast, reshaped by Jesus. And that's essentially what he does here in verse 3. Jesus, along with Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they have a talk. And it's an important talk, and it takes place on a very important mountain, the Mount of Olives, directly across from this awe-inspiring, incredible building that Jesus just said it's going to come down. So I want to direct your attention to verse 4. Because here we have in verse 4 the the presenting question. This is really the most important question of this text that will, as you'll see here in just a moment, that will really guide the rest of this passage. Verse 4, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now again, this is, I think, absolutely crucial to our understanding of how to make sense of this text and really everything that flows. We need to determine what are the these things that the disciples are asking Jesus. And I think just given the immediate context, the disciples sitting on this mountain, staring at this incredible building, a magnificent building. They've never seen anything like this before. And Jesus just said, that's all coming down. Their question is, okay, Jesus, tell us, when is that temple going to be destroyed? When's that going to happen? And so like I said, brothers and sisters, if, if we're going to make sense of the rest of this passage, we need to understand is that the rest of the chapter is primarily, primarily, Jesus' answer to that question. When is the temple in Jerusalem going to be destroyed? The one that we're looking at here, Jesus, and the one that you said is coming down. When is that going to happen? Now, I doubt, I doubt any of you woke up this morning asking that same question. Lord, when's the temple in Jerusalem going to be destroyed? And how will I know that? Yet this is where we need to put ourselves really in first century shoes. In the immediate context of a man or woman alive in the first century. Because there is a, an absolute uh, original audience in first century context here that's going to be super important. I'm going to circle back to that in just a minute. But, but here is what I hope would be just a simple, helpful, but biblically faithful outline of this text, and actually next week as well, Pastor Dave will pick up the second part here. But here's where I'm going this morning. The first half of Mark 13, our text this morning, really verses 5 through 23, refers primarily to the coming destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. 
The second part, next week, verses 24 through 37, refers to the Son of Man and the return of the Son of Man at the end of the age. Jesus actually gives two, I think, helpful parables related to the timing of both of those things. Now, are there there certain verses that read that so we think, boy, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure how to make sense of that. Is there some overlap here? Of course there is. But what I want you to see this morning is that the words of Jesus here to his disciples is a prophetic prediction of what was to take place, what was to be fulfilled from A.D. 30 to A.D. 70. I just did that backwards. A.D. 30 to A.D. 70. Namely, when the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. So again, the real issue at stake for the disciples then is the same issue that you and I wrestle with today. Is Jesus a fraud? Can we trust what he says here? Does he actually know the future? Can we trust him enough to, that he's going to follow through on his word? What this means then is that most of what we read here is actually not about the end times. It's about the destruction of the temple. It means then that the signs, and we're going to look at those in just a moment, these indicators that Jesus speaks about here are not so that we can better predict the return of Christ. These signs have already taken place, coming between the death of Jesus, A.D. 30, and A.D. 70, the destruction of the temple. What this means then, brothers and sisters, is that we should not come to this chapter looking to interpret current events around us. We should not expect this chapter to tell us how we are to rightly interpret volatile conflict in the Middle East. It's not designed to do that. The question that's raised here is, Jesus, when's that temple going to be destroyed? And Jesus answers that question. He gives his disciples signs, indicators of when that's going to take place. Here's the first one, verse 6. There will be false teachers who lead God's people astray. False prophets, false messiahs, fake messiahs will rise up. They will tempt the people of God. They will tempt the faithful to forsake the one true God, to forsake worshiping the true Messiah. And if you read, brothers and sisters, the book of Acts, and this is another thing that surprised me this week, and so let me just pass this on to you. I hope this is helpful. If you're trying to make your way through Mark 13, I would highly encourage you to have the book of Acts open as well. If you have two Bibles, that's great. If one's on your phone, fine. But the book of Acts actually serves as a commentary on exactly what we're talking about here. It fills in the details. And so if you read the book of Acts, you'll see, man, there was a lot of false prophets and a lot of odd things going on between A.D. 30 and A.D. 70, just like Jesus said. Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 1, among many other passages, records these false prophets after false prophets. What Jesus said here, well, he's one for one so far. Let's keep making our way through the list and see. Second, verse 7, there will be wars and rumors of war. Human history is replete with conflict and wars and fighting Families against family, yes, but nations and states against states. It's always been the case. Historians have documented that in the last 3,421 years of recorded human history, 
Only 268 have seen no war. But what about all the unrecorded years of human history? Do we think that was just a bouncing from one rainbow to the next? We know, if we read our Bibles from Genesis 3 on, that's all there's been in every season in human history. There's never been a minute without wars. The third sign of this impending destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus says, verse 8, there's going to be earthquakes. The fourth sign, also in verse 8, there's going to be famines. Now, these sorts, earthquakes and famines, these sort of cataclysmic events that produce devastation for people and, and oftentimes for entire nations, often we read into those and we mistake those for evidence, well, yeah, that the end is near. But isn't it interesting, when wars and famines occur here, what does Jesus say? He says, when you see these things, don't be alarmed. In other words, don't be afraid. Verse 7, that's actually not the end. And if you skip down to verse 23, there's actually words of comfort from Jesus. He says, look, I'm telling you these things. Like, I don't want you to be surprised. I want to tell you these things up ahead. So in other words, these things, these signs and false prophets and wars and earthquakes, they don't signal the end of the world. They're actually part of the normal course of human history. Jesus thinks these things, he says these things must take place. In other words, what he's saying is God is sovereign. God is absolutely sovereign. He is in control of every detail of human history. From the beginning, he knows the beginning and the middle and the end, and he is leading history to its appointed and proper end. And that's why Jesus says all these things, false prophets, wars, earthquakes, famines, all these things are leading somewhere. They're signs, but they're just the beginning, verse 8, of what? Birth pains. It's the beginning of birth pains. Now, I don't have to tell you that being pregnant... It's not the same as giving birth. There's actually a whole nine-month gestational process there that is, every time I see that or read something about that, it's just like, how can you not believe there is a God for everything that's going on in the belly? But there, it's just the beginning. There are certain pains, obviously, associated with giving birth that lead to the actual birth. I remember when Becky was pregnant with our first child, Ella, Frequently, as her due date would approach, as that became near, I would often kind of look over at her, and you know, her belly would be expanding, and I'd, I'd kind of say, now? And she'd say, no. And I'd think, okay. And then sometimes, a few days later, she would come, and she'd be like, oh, there's some rumbling going on here. And I'd say, now. And she'd say, no. And then like a week later, I'd, I'd have the overnight bag, and, and the car keys, and my smelling salts. And I would, I would say, now. And she'd still say no. And then one night her water broke at 11 p.m. And she looked at me and said, now. And I was like, no, I'm not ready. (laughs) Not yet. I can't be now. There's an intense longing and suffering that eventually gives way to birth, yes. But the picture that Jesus gives us here, again, concerning the destruction of the temple, is like, look, now, no, now, no, now, no. These are birth pains. It's going to happen But it's not right now. Again, being pregnant, the birth pains, that doesn't tell us exactly when that baby's going to be born, the exact time and the date, does it? 
Just says that a baby will be born. And so these birth planes, Jesus says, look, they're leading somewhere. But essentially, Jesus is saying, yeah, when you see those things, you can trust me. You need to trust me that I know what's going on. Here's the fifth indicator, sign, if you will, that the temple in Jerusalem, I think, is going to be destroyed. Widespread persecution. This is verses 9 through 13. These are hard verses. Sobering. I don't think you read a passage like this and you think, I totally want to become a Christian. That's what was so surprising when I read this and immersed myself in this. It, it actually did make me want to become a Christian all over again and to trust Jesus. Because Jesus says, look, his disciples are going to face persecution. They're going to suffer intense personal hatred. Families will be ripped apart. He says, you're going to be put on trial. You're going to be put before very powerful men, government leaders, who will accuse you of all kinds of evil And again, we read the book of Acts and we say, that's exactly what happened between A.D. 30 and A.D. 70, before the destruction of the temple. Remember Paul before Agrippa, Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 21. And obviously it's still happening today. It hasn't stopped, brothers and sisters, Tell your Muslim family in Pakistan that you believe that Jesus Christ is the one true God. He's the only way for salvation. And you will then understand a little bit more the terrible reality of which Jesus is talking about here. We're not immune from that. God help us if we think we are. 2 Timothy 3.12 All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I don't know about you, but I read that and I think, well, Lord, isn't there a way if, you know, if we just kind of maybe clean up the image of the church a little bit more, maybe we can just smooth out some of the rough edges of some of those old-fashioned doctrines that really are divisive, you know, hell, final judgment. Maybe people will just like us more. If I can just communicate more winsomely, if you can just communicate more winsomely, maybe people will just really like the church and they'll just join. The Bible gives us no such promise. In fact, it's just the opposite. If you desire to be a faithful disciple, if you desire to walk with Jesus in humility in this life, you will be persecuted. But that's not breaking news, brothers and sisters. That was happening in the first century. And there hasn't been a century where that has not happened and it continues in our day. But I want you to to see the promise here. In the midst of this awful persecution and hardship, Jesus says, you're not going to be alone. You're never going to be alone. In fact, the promise here is of the presence of the Holy Spirit who in those moments when you may be put on trial, where you stand before your accusers, you're not alone. The Holy Spirit will give you words to say. We can read our Bibles. Just keep reading from Acts and you'll see how true that is. But we have the benefit of thousands of years of church history and the thousands, perhaps even millions of martyrs of 
godly men and women who looked death in the face and they did not flinch. They didn't. And in the midst of this persecution that Jesus talks about here, notice what he says in verse 10. That somehow what is impossible for us, (laughs) it's not for Jesus, Somehow Jesus says that the gospel will still be preached and proclaimed to all nations. Even widespread persecution will not stop the worldwide dissemination of the good news of the gospel and all God's people said. Now this has obvious mission implications for us. I mean you might read this and think, yeah, see, we need to take the gospel to every corner of the globe. Amen, amen, we need to do that. If you were here for our members meeting, you saw that our missions giving right now is at 10%. And you heard me say, I want that to grow. 11, 12, 13, 20? Why not? So the gospels are going to be taken to every corner of the globe. We have a responsibility for that. But perhaps you're reading this and you think, okay, Brinkman, here's where your argument totally breaks down because I'm tracking with you. Uh, AD 70, the gospel did not go to the whole world, so this must be about the end time. This must be about the end of the world. I'm not convinced of where you're going. Hang tight. I actually think this did take place by AD 70, and I'm not alone in that, and you can read later. But you might wonder, well, how can that be? Reconcile those two things. Here again is where we need to put ourselves in first century shoes, the context of a man or woman, the disciples who are hearing this, what did they think when Jesus said to them, guys, just so you know, there's going to be a lot of persecution, wars, famines, a whole bunch of really nasty stuff, but hey, good news, the gospel's going to go to the ends of the world. What are they thinking? Well, the, that word world, it's the Greek word ethnos. And in this context, again, the first century hearers, it meant... Okay, when they think world, you know what they're thinking about? The Roman Empire and, and all the land surrounding the, uh, the Mediterranean Sea. So Peter, James, John, they know nothing of Zimbabwe or Costa Rica or New Zealand. All they knew was the world. That's the Roman Empire and the land surrounding the Mediterranean Sea. And so again, if you read the book of Acts, What do you find? You see then that the gospel did in fact go to the whole world. It went all across the Roman Empire and the places around the Mediterranean Sea. So again, this this word here, this word world, it's indicative. Let me me give you a couple of examples, Acts 11.27. There we read of a famine over the whole world. Does that mean Brazilians are hungry? Was there a famine in Brazil? No. Nobody knew about Brazil. Acts 24, verse 5, Paul is, in fact, brought before Felix, and he's charged with stirring up riots among the Jews throughout the world. Was Paul stirring up riots among the Jews in Russia? No, nobody knew about Russia. How about Luke chapter 2, verse 1? Familiar verse. The Christmas story of all things. We're only three months away from Christmas, side point. A decree went out that all the world should be registered. Did that include the Canadians? 
Like, hey, guys, end of the first period, take your, take your, take your uh, skates off and <laughs> load up the donkeys because you've got to be registered. No, unfortunately for the world, nobody knew about the mighty Canadians. <laughs> the people in the first century understood that the world was their world. It's the Roman Empire, the Mediterranean, places around the Mediterranean Sea. And so, yes, in the, in the uh, years from A.D. 30 to A.D. 70, we see then that the gospel did, in fact, go throughout the whole world, and the words of Jesus, again, were proved true. Read the book of Acts. Now, it is okay, too, if you're not convinced and you're thinking, I'm still not really buying what you're offering this morning, Brinkman. That's fine. But at the very least, can you be encouraged at this? When you read your Bible and you come upon perplexing phrases, sometimes whole passages, and you wonder, I don't understand what's going on there. I can't make sense of these two things. Don't give up. You can actually have confidence that the Lord is not trying to trick you when you read his word, you pray. That's why we pray for the illumination. God, give me eyes and ears to see what, what you have there. So stick with it. You don't have to fear, in fact. Keep your nose buried in God's word and your spiritual eyes upward. When's the temple going to be destroyed? That's the question that the disciples ask Jesus. In response, Jesus gives them these signs, these indicators. Five of them so far. In answer to their question, one of the challenges I think we face in understanding what Jesus is really saying here is when we then move from the first century to the 21st century. And again, the natural tendency for many of us is to believe that catastrophic events threatening our lives are also signs then of the end of the world. Like, if my world is collapsing, the whole world must be collapsing. So when there is an earthquake in Japan or a typhoon in Thailand, we think, well, there it is. Get the candles out. It's coming. I just want to caution us. Do not read apocalyptic scenarios into every piece of breaking news. We don't need to read the current events and contemporary headlines to come up with the conclusion that the world is going to end. We already know that. And if you stick around next week or come back next week, Pastor Dave is going to show you here how, well, yeah, Jesus knew that too, and he speaks to that. So all these signs, war and famine and persecution, these are terrible, but they're not surprising. The upheaval of the earth, as Pastor Dave will talk about next week, that's devastating, but it's not unexpected. Endless speculation and rumination about the end times and these signs typically, brothers and sisters, leads only to a whole lot more fears. And that's the one thing Jesus says in this text. You don't have to fear. You don't have to be alarmed. In other words, don't be afraid. Again, verse 23, I'm telling you things ahead of time so that you're not. So in one sense, these signs are non-signs. Signs that don't signal the end. They signal the destruction of the temple. This is, in many ways, the normal earthly life that has been from the very beginning. These things happen in every age. Some of, not all, 
some of the most worried and anxious Christians that I have met over the years also tend to be the ones that have spent a whole lot of time in the book of Revelation. Look, I get it. It's, it's good to study Revelation. That's the only book in the Bible where God says you're going to be blessed. We ought to study that. You ought to understand. You ought to come up with an end times position. Just hold it humbly and loosely. But yes, figure it out. But here's the thing. If all of your study of the end times and prophecy and trying to put the pieces together, where does that lead? If that leads to greater fear and concern and you're just like tied up in knots about everything that's coming out of the Middle East, stop. Perhaps the great need for you this morning is to learn to trust Christ all over again as if for the first time. Here's the sixth and final sign of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Verse 14, you will see the abomination of desolation. Let's close in prayer. (laughs) A lot of ink has been spilled on this. Over the centuries, a lot of ink will be spilled. Here's, Here's just as a, I think what a helpful thought here. The inner circle of the disciples, those guys gathered on Jesus, they knew exactly what he was talking about. And the reason we know that is because we don't find Peter saying, time out, Lord, you just said a loaded term. What do you mean by that? We don't have that recorded here. So they, they understood what Jesus meant. He's, that, that term is used three times in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, chapter 11, chapter 12. The term abomination, when used in Daniel, means something that is loathsome detestable, repugnant in the eyes of God, almost unspeakable. And yes, it describes a figure who would desecrate the temple and abolish the temple sacrifices. It it was an abomination so detestable, so awful, that it would actually cause the temple to be abandoned by the people of God and provoke desolation. Now, in contrast to what Jesus says about those first five indicators, those first five signs, persecution, wars, famines. He says, don't be alarmed. Do not fear. Patiently endure. That is not the case when we come to this sixth line and the abomination of desolation because Jesus says, when you see that, run. Get out. Flee Jerusalem. Head for the Judean hills. Because the point is, Jerusalem is doomed and it is no longer a safe place. So get out and get out now. And there's not even time to return for the basic necessities. Verses 17 through 20 just show the the urgency of this. You don't have time to go back and grab your jacket. Who cares if it's winter? You're going to have to deal with that. Escape over rough terrain. That's going to be difficult. Yes, especially in winter, dark, especially for nursing moms and pregnant women. I mean, it's a horrific scene. God's people fleeing the very place where they're supposed to be. So what's going on here? Jesus predicts in this very powerful prophetic language that this was going to happen. And in my estimation, that's at least partially fulfilled by A.D. 70. And all we have to do here, brothers and sisters, is just read some of the history. It's all there for us 150 years earlier. 167 B.C., Assyrian king, Antiochus Epiphanes, sacrificed a pig 
on the altar of burnt offerings. That's the least of the things he did. He set up an altar to Zeus in the temple. Now, this act of idolatry was so detestable that the Jewish people revolted. It's called the Maccabean Revolt, and you can read all about that. That was an abomination, I think you would agree. And yet, as awful as that was, a few years later, in A.D. 40, the insane emperor Caligula, thinking that he was a god, almost succeeded in setting up a a picture of himself, an image in, in the temple. A decade or so later, Jewish zealots allowed criminals to enter the Holy of Holies, the most sacred place on earth, and they murdered people there. And then according to the Jewish historian Josephus, and I'm not making this stuff up. Josephus is not making this stuff up. They put a literal clown named Fanny in charge of the temple services. That's an abomination. And yes, if we go all the way to A.D. 70, Roman General Titus, who would later become emperor, sacked the city of Jerusalem. It was a bloody, awful five-month battle. And as as history records that, uh, they recorded that great numbers of Christians in this time fled Jerusalem. They were, and I'm quoting now, as swimmers deserting a sinking ship. In other words... I think what Jesus said here actually came to fruition. I think he can actually be trusted. It occurred as Jesus said it would here in Mark 13 concerning the destruction of the temple. And as horrible as those events were in AD 70 and leading up to AD 70, could there also be a sense where this destruction of the temple, that that would actually pale in comparison to the end time tribulation that we read here in verse 19? That's possible. Having told his disciples about everything about the fall of the temple in Jerusalem here, I don't know about you, but if Jesus wants to jump ahead like thousands of years to inform him of stuff related to his second coming, I think he should do that. I'm not going to argue with him. But Jesus doesn't actually tell them that it's a millennia distant. All he simply says is that that's on the other side of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Everybody take a deep breath. Now we get to towel off. What does this actually mean for us today? Two things. Number one, as I mentioned, personally, reading this text, thinking about this text, and here I am preaching this text, this made me want to trust Christ all over again. It made me want to be a Christian all over again. Because it made me say, Lord, you are true. You are right. We're not just making this stuff up here. I want to put all my trust in you. I don't want to hold anything back from you. Because what you say, in fact, will happen, just as you said it would, every last detail. So brothers and sisters, when you consider his glory and his majesty and his power and his rule and reign right now, why would you put your trust in anyone or anything else? Church, we need not fear the future. Tomorrow, The next week, two years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now. We don't have to worry because God is 
on our side, moving all things to its appointed end. Jesus, in fact, has a plan. And it's good, ultimately, for all those who belong to him by faith. So very practically, if you can see how in this text, if you can see how the words of Jesus are in fact fulfilled, what he said came about. It gives you and me then great confidence to trust him with the things in our lives that are yet not fulfilled. And we all have those. Remember the story of the paralytic in Mark chapter 2? It feels like a millennia ago that we were there. The story of the paralytic, lame man, Jesus heals him. And remember what he said? Jesus tells him, look, pick up your mat, go home. He does that all on the Sabbath day, got Jesus into a whole bunch of trouble. But remember the point of that? Jesus said that to display his authority to forgive sins. But all those around there, they just see this guy who couldn't walk suddenly walking home. They couldn't see that Jesus had actually forgiven him of his sins. But Jesus says, well, here's the point of that. I want to show you this because this is so that you would know I have authority and so that you would trust me with the things in your life that are still yet unfulfilled. So, brothers and sisters, this is a call to trust Jesus with the things in your life that you cannot see or the things that you do not yet see. And we all have those things, those people, those circumstances, the prayers that you continue to pray and you're not, is God listening? Is he hearing? I don't see any movement. Those are the things that Jesus is calling you to trust him with. My job, my family, my kids, my career, whatever it may be. Those are the things that Jesus is saying, you can trust me. So trust Jesus. He's the only king. He's the only king worth following. He's the only king worth trusting. And maybe this morning you'll trust him, maybe for the first time ever, or perhaps really trust him for the first time in a very long time. Second, our great need, brothers and sisters, is to live as prophetic people. To live as prophetic people. So to be clear, I don't mean go home, figure out your end times position, memorize it, and tell everybody you know. No, Jesus is the true prophet. We follow him faithfully as his disciples then. Our role in this world is not to speculate about the end of the world. It's to preach and proclaim the good news of the gospel. So we need to be careful not to be drawn into the wrong battle. We human beings kind of have, that's a problem for us from the beginning of the world. In fact, if we were alive in the period right leading up to the destruction of the temple there in A.D. 70. People had all kinds of false ideas of what was going to happen about who the true Messiah was and what he was about to do. I mean, they're thinking, good, the Messiah's going to be here. Man, he's going to kill all the enemies. He's going to vanquish them. Everything's going to be great for us. They didn't understand that Jesus is a different kind of Messiah. His mission was not to enter Jerusalem and kill all his enemies. 
His mission was to gather all of his enemies and redeem them by dying on the cross, giving up his own life. That's our story. That's what Jesus has done for us because we were once his enemies. And so one day we're going to see all the enemies of Jesus Christ bow down to him. Brothers and sisters, we need to keep that day in mind as we live faithfully in our day. So proclaiming the good news of the gospel, calling all men and women, boys and girls, to repent of their sins, to believe in Jesus Christ as your only hope in this life and the one to come, that's how we live prophetic lives. And Jesus tells us it's not going to be easy. Not going to be easy, verses 21 and 22. Why? Because there's going to be false prophets. There's going to be fake messiahs. They're going to seek to draw all of us away with incredible signs and wonders. Their message is going to be very enticing. We're going to be curious. Jesus says, don't listen. Verse 23, be on your guard. Be on guard. We all have daily decisions to make in this. Am I going to listen to this podcast? Am I going to read that book? Am I going to give that teacher some of my time and headspace? I'm not saying that every podcast we listen to is a false teacher. At the very least, it says we ought to be and we need to be way more discerning about the things that we are taking in than most of us really are. Because the question, after you put the book down, after you listen to the podcast, after you listen to whatever that teaching is, really the question is, does this make me love Jesus more? Does this make me want to humble myself before him and proclaim the gospel to everyone I see? Does this help me see the glory and the greatness of Jesus? Or does this just get me riled up and fired up and distracted from really what I'm called to do and who I'm called to be. Faithful plotters. To live as prophetic people then means that we are alert. We are ready to discern truth from error. Yes, we're going to be ready to to suffer. We're not going to give one inch to false teachers. We're not going to sanitize certain doctrines to win crowds and influence people. No, no. Every day we are learning to trust Jesus all over again as if for the first time. Because when you really see Jesus for who he is, when you come to grips with this Jesus who's saying these things here in Mark chapter 13, doesn't it make you, doesn't it just want to make you become a Christian all over again? 